by listeners like you. Thanks for using the Tomes Amazon and Audible links. Hi, I'm James Wyatt, one of the lead designers for 4th edition and author of Eberron Trilogy, The Draconic Prophecies, and you're listening to The Tome Show. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley. In this episode, number 209, we're going to make it up as we go along as we talk about creating your game story on the fly. For this episode, we have a very special guest, game designer, master storyteller, novel writer, and all-around swell fellow, James Wyatt. Yay! <laughs> Before we get too far into the advice, we should check on James's D&D cred to make sure he's up to snuff here, which is always fun to say, <laughs> since uh, I always enjoy getting in that line, since most of our guests are way more qualified to give advice on D&D than I am. Uh-huh. <laughs> so let's start. Let's start with um, getting to the core of James Wyatt. James, who are you? Who am I? Ooh, that's deep. Huh? I'm just this guy, you know. <laughs> uh, let's see. My, so, <laughs> assuming this is what you really want to know, I'm the creative manager for Dungeons and Dragons at Wizards of the Coast, which means that I have my fingers in everything story related that goes on with D and D. So that's a lot of stuff with our, the tabletop RPG, but it's also coordinating with our the team who is working with our digital licensees on things like Neverwinter and Dungeons and Dragons Online. Um, and it's, or at least my team works with our board game designers to make sure that the story behind Lords of Waterdeep is making sense and stuff like that. So if it's story, it, I have some oversight over it. And how did you get into D&D and the game industry? Well, I started playing D&D in 1979 when I was 11. Um, when I was a huge Tolkien fan and desperately wanted to understand what this Dungeons & Dragons game was and how to play it. And I couldn't do that until I got the, the original basic set. Um, so a friend and I figured out how to play, and it's been pretty much... Uh, downhill from there <laughs> or something. Um, I, I started writing professionally when I was a pastor in Southeast Ohio and needed something to recharge my batteries. Um, that was around 1996. So I wrote stuff for the magazines and did more and more of that uh, as I honed my skills for about four years until a job opening came up on the design team for D&D at Wizards, and I applied and miraculously got it. Um, that was in 2000. So, actually, this Thursday, the 17th, is my 13th anniversary of working at Wizards. Well, congrats. So, 
so you've been around for a while, and you've, you you know your way in and out of a couple uh, of D and D rules. It seems you you might <laughs> you might be qualified to talk about how to make up story on the fly. I hope so. <laughs> uh, is there anything you've been working on lately you want to talk about? Um, well, obviously, D&D Next is taking up a significant amount of my time. Um, I'm working on story elements of of that game and playtest materials and stuff. Uh, often, Jeremy Crawford, who is kind of coordinating the whole process, would come by my desk and say, James, I need you to write a couple of pages on this or make a pass through the cleric. And um, I've also been working a lot on adventure material and adventure design guides and uh, writing my Wandering Monsters column to kind of get the story of all of our monsters um, into a place that we're happy with. Um, and then when I wear my other hat, I'm busy trying to coordinate this novel series we're launching this year, The Sundering, um, to kind of bring the Forgotten Realms to a stable state where it will uh, carry on into the future. Um, so the first draft of the first couple of books have just come in and uh, I've been working on reading those and, and trying to keep all of that going in the right direction as well. And, and when, it, when is the Sundering going to start? What's the plan for that? Uh, the first book releases in August of this year. Uh, that is Bob Salvatore's book, The Companions. Um, then, and they come out every two months after that uh, okay. for, for five more books. All right, so we've got a, we've got a few more book clubs that we can get in before everything's going to be sundering for a year. <laughs> right. Excellent. Now, a lot of the the idea, I guess, uh, I had when I came up with this this topic and the idea of having you on for this advice episode came out of uh, uh, what was it, Escapist Expo, the the convention uh-huh. in, in Durham, where where you and I got together and got to chat a little bit. Uh, and you were talking about the the games that you were running there. And mm-hmm. I was I was thoroughly impressed by the way you were just completely making up the story as you went on the fly, no prep or very little prep. Um, and so before we get into the actual advice of how to do that, could you tell a little bit of, of that story of, of how you what, – what the idea was and how you did it and, and, and what, all, what have you? Okay. Um, so what I was running at the Escapes Expo was kind of a crazy mashup of classic D&D adventures. Um, and that started, I think, when I was looking at Against the Cult of the Reptile God, um, Adventure N1 from the early 80s, and realizing that the buildings in there are almost identical to the buildings in the village of Hamlet. Um, I, I think pretty much the village of Hamlet set out of here are the buildings that should be in a D&D town, and everybody after that just followed that pattern. Um, in some cases, even the NPCs are very similar. And so I started thinking, well, what happens if you mash these two adventures up into a single thing and turn it into the village of Hom Lane or something like that? Um, I ended up calling it Hummel Lane, and it's a mashup of Hamlet and Orlane and also uh, the Keep on the Borderlands and a little bit of Anglerberg from the Evil Tide 2nd Edition adventure. And, um, well, I incorporated the Sinister Secret of Salt Marsh as well, but there's no description of Salt Marsh in that adventure. There was one in 3rd Edition, but I didn't really draw on that. Um, so what I had with me at the table was a couple of notes that I had made about um, the island that I had dropped this village onto 
and dropped the moat house and the uh, haunted house and the reptile cult temple and the cave of chaos all in or around. Um, and I had the original modules with me and I had a page of notes that uh, provided hooks basically for every background that was in the playtest packet at the time. Uh, I don't think those have changed very much since then, but for every background I had a couple of sentences about um, hooks into the story, basically. So if you were uh, a commoner, I would say, okay, you're you're a commoner in this village of Hummel Lane, and you've uh, recently experienced trouble with brigands on the road up to the northern end of the island, um, lost some goods that you were trying to sell or something like that. Um, and if you're, well, whatever. So, so each background had a hook, and at the start of each session, I would sit down and go around the table and uh, ask everybody their background. And since most of them were using pre-generated characters, it tended to be the same five backgrounds over and over again. Um, so I, I would try to mix them up on the fly a little bit. Uh, and I'd give them these hooks and then just step back and, and let the players go. Um, often the, the player at the table with the strongest personality would decide where where the group would go. Um, and, and that never seemed to be a problem. Uh, once or twice, there might have been some discussion, some heated discussion about what, what leads to follow up. No, it never got heated. Um, and so then the crazy thing that I was doing is that each, each session that I ran, I ran like seven sessions over the course of the weekend. I assumed that everything that had previously happened over the weekend had actually happened. So it was actually seven different groups of adventurers coming to the, this, these islands in rapid succession and facing a lot of the same problems. But so by, by, the start of the second day, I was revising the background hooks a little bit to account for some of that. Oh, if you're a priest of the Raven, you know that another priest of your order was recently unmasked as a secret servant of the Cult of Chaos, and that's causing some uh, disturbances in the Force. Um, and, and maybe you want to try to um, clear your order's name or something like that. Um, so it actually worked really well. Uh, the players grooved on it, um, had a lot of fun deciding what to do and going and chasing down. And so then, you know, when they, I'm sorry, I'm going on terribly long, but um, when they would decide what, what leads to follow up, I would pull out the old adventure as needed. Um, they never got particularly deeply into any one of them. Oh, that's not true. They got pretty far into the reptile cult. Um, and uh, I had a cheat sheet of monster statistics that were just baseline. Here's uh, what the numbers ought to be for a monster for second or third level, um, according to our design guides at the time, which have changed pretty drastically since then. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when Sihuigan jump up on the docks and start attacking, or when they randomly fight a cleric in the temple of the lawbringer who is a, a enslaved by the reptile cult, I can, I can come up with stats on the fly. Um, so a lot of this boils down to, um, what the DMG calls preparing to improvise. Um, I had enough ready that I was able to wing anything else that came up. Mm -hmm. okay. So you, you basically had an approach of, of there is no story, but everything's the story. Right. Um, <laughs> the, 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 there is no narrative. There's no, uh, right kind of predefined course of action. And that's the way I've been, we've been talking a lot about adventure design. 
um, recently. And one of the, the concepts that uh, actually has largely emerged from my work on this crazy mashup that we find in a lot of conversations is this idea that, that really what you're trying to do is provide a, a story minefield where the players can wander around and follow whatever leads they want and uh, from regularity they're going to step on a, a story mine that's going to explode and uh, give them something to do and hopefully propel them in the direction of another explosion. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So it was really just a matter of seeding the field with enough uh, hooks and um, and encounter opportunities, basically, that they would never have to wander around too long searching for the fun. Sure. Um, without feeling like they were being led by the nose in one direction or another. Yeah, absolutely. And and you you I mean you as you said you seeded the field, but you seeded the field with things that you didn't have to create. You know, it's not like you created right. half a dozen places. Um, it was right. a, it was a way of of, of you know, with a couple of pages of notes and a stack of pre-generated or you know pre-published uh, modules, um, you were able to put together a, a sandbox sort of of story right. and, and system, and that's sort of what what inspired us to get together and, and chat about that kind of thing today. Yeah, cool. I really like the part about tying it to the background because it's one of the things I do like about D and D next is that I found backgrounds to be an, an easy thing for. Uh, players to pick that tell something about their character that as a DM I also can easily provide hooks for. Yeah. It it provides a really easy structure, you know, rather than just giving you a list of three possible hooks and, and asking you to figure out which one to use or how to bring the whole party together, you're giving everybody, based on the decisions they've already made about their character, an automatic end of the story. Yeah. And it's not right. the same thing for every character. Everybody's got their own motivations and, and their own interests in, in what to pursue, um, which I think it creates a lot of opportunity for role-playing within the party by, by creating the... It's not really conflict within the party, but some tension of, you know, we have to make a decision as a group. How, how are we going to make that decision? You know, really, I can just step back and watch them hash that out and and uh, some players that they can really get into role-playing while they're making that decision. I ran a game here, uh, the same setup, where uh, one of the players was playing the pre-generated halfling rogue who's one of had had the, uh, the artisan background and was a cook. And she just totally ran with that. And uh, first of all, was playing one of those really cheerful, energetic, annoying halflings. Um, but everything was about food. <laughs> and uh, she managed to completely steer the party despite some pretty strong feelings about other directions but she took them the way that she wanted to go uh really true force of personality but it just opens up great opportunities for role playing yeah well and when i was at uh, gen con um merle's ran a game for us and we had one of the strong personalities and she decided she wanted to create a restaurant that's what she wanted to do and we quickly <laughs> started uh, aligning ourselves like, okay, well, given, you know, the pre-gen we have in front of us, what role in a restaurant could we fill? And that's how we, <laughs> we started going about it. And it, it helped focus the story pretty quickly and we can deal with a party. Uh, right on. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and that's not something that's, that's, I mean, backgrounds and specialties in, in next sort of, lend themselves to that pretty well. Uh, but for, you could do, we did, the, in fact, I did the same sort of thing in fourth edition with, um, 
Paragon Paths, Epic Destinies, themes, all that kind of stuff. You can tie them in yeah. there as well. Um, it's just, yeah. a, you know, and, and a lot of games have something in there that you can use that informs the character's story that you can easily use to, to generate hooks. Absolutely. I guess running a, conven- a game at a convention for a bunch of strangers presents the peculiar challenge of not knowing, well, unless they're using pre-gens, not knowing uh, what character elements they're going to have in advance. And so having a, a set list of possibilities, um, like all the backgrounds in the player's handbook 2 for fourth edition or all the paragon paths in well, whatever sources you're allowing, that might be a very long list. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so having that narrow list can can let you prepare for that weird situation. But of course, if we're talking about a home game, then you know what what your characters' backgrounds are, and you can tie in hooks to whatever elements of their story you want to, because you have that information. Right. Good. So it, go ahead. Oh, I was just say it sounded a little bit too from the way you're describing how you use, how you tied together the different modules that it might also help have uh, like generic story elements that you could easily modify on the fly uh, that you can bring characters into because it seems like there's a lot of repetition like you're saying there's a lot of repetition in those modules uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's certainly true in the town but uh, yeah that's what I meant. probably the probably the biggest story work that I did uh, it was not much was um, taking the, the threats in each module and linking them together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was basically the keep on the borderlands that, uh, that provided that hook with his cult of chaos. I made the cult of chaos kind of the, the impetus behind the bandits in the moat house and Larith the beautiful beneath the moat house and, uh, what the cult of the reptile God and the, uh, smugglers up in the haunted house from salt marsh okay. and the Sahulgan even, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily all, directly related to the cult, but related to the, the being that I called the Queen of Chaos. And I, oh, actually, that's where it all started, is the Rod of Seven Parts. <laughs> I was looking through the old D&D stuff and found that box, Rod of Seven Parts adventure, and um, there's a concept there that I just love that's not necessarily reflected in that adventure, but um, the idea of structuring the entire campaign around the Rod of Seven Parts. And so... Um, yeah, I got thinking about that, and and that's where the whole mashup idea came from. But anyway, um, hmm. so the Queen of Chaos from the Rod of Seven Parts became the the ultimate villain looking in the background of all of this. And I have described her as sometimes she looks like um, Ursula from The Little Mermaid, as this big octopus hybrid person. Other times she's depicted as a dragon with five heads, or um, a, a woman... A, creature with the body of a spider and the torso of a dark-skinned elf woman, um, hmm. basically tying all these elements of D&D lore together into this one Queen of Chaos figure uh, that was the ultimate evil of the whole world. Um, wow. So, you know, the Suhugan, who in the Evil Tide Adventure are looking for something in the sea caves beneath the island. Uh, they're looking for some stone that's tied to the Deep Mother or something like that. I can't remember now. Um, but so yeah, they're 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 beings of chaos as well. They're looking for the, some force of chaos that lies beneath the island. And that and that's and it all that's, fits together. That's an interesting um, point that that actually helps get it, get us into some of the the more general advice. I guess is that um, it, it helps. I think to have that 
that one thing that makes it all cohesive. You know, if you're going to have a yeah. hundred threats uh, surrounding the village of of what used to be Hamlet, um, <laughs> there better be a pretty good reason for it. Otherwise, this this village is is in real trouble. You know, <laughs> so, yeah. and if right. and if people are going to do that in their games, you know, and they're going to have a, a a very sandbox open, unprepped story sort of thing like this, um, or light prep, I guess. Um, you know, there should be some sort of larger cohesive theme because that helps provide some consistency throughout the adventures um, and also, you know, helps justify it and help it make it a little sense. Yeah, and, and they were... So they're creating the story as they go along, too, at that point. There's a, a, a narrative. There's a, there's an undergoing underlying story that they get to find out and they get to push along the plot, their own plot, as they go through it mm-hmm. that you wouldn't get if it was yeah. connected. Sorry. Yeah, uh, Jeff used the word theme, and I think that's actually uh, important. It, uh, sometimes in thinking about this, I kind of chase against getting them all together too neatly. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't necessarily want them all to report to the high priest in the caves of chaos as a kind of this hierarchy of chaos, which doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> but thematically, there's the conflict between law and chaos as a driving element in the campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't worked out the details of that because, hey, I'm running this on the fly, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, Larith the Beautiful works for the cult, but the bandits aren't directly connected to the cult, but they're still a force of chaos in the island, and mm-hmm. the Suhuga aren't connected at all, but they also reveal the Queen of Chaos or whatever. So there's that thematic element, but not necessarily a too tight a link. Well, I think it's got to be... Go ahead. There's got to be room too for elements that are completely unconnected. Not too many right. of them, but crazy things like these two brothers in the town are heated rivals, and um, maybe that's a uh, nugget that players are going to pick up on and run with for a while. Find out, oh, they're this guy's son and this guy's daughter. And maybe they're not brothers. <laughs> the cousins run off. No. Um, <laughs> So, so there's some ten- some way that that tension explodes, perhaps facilitated by the players, and they get sucked into that kind of side plot for a while. And hey, if they're having fun, whatever. But then you look for some way to tie it back into the chaos theme, mm-hmm. and it all gets fun. Well, and and I know if I'm going to improv something like this as a DM, that also helps me helps me. Um, have some internal consistency. If I sort of know in the background what's going on, then it, uh-huh. the stuff I have to make up on the fly works a little bit better because I can at least make sure it makes sense within this this larger thing that's happening. You yeah. Know? Or at least doesn't contradict it, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. So the last uh, long-term campaign that I ran, that I basically set it up as, okay, this is all about Again, kind of law versus chaos, but the gods versus the primordials, and um, just having that in the back of my head, whenever players ask a question that I don't know the answer to, I can I can use that theme to shape my answer. Mm-hmm. So, if you're going to make up a story on the fly, uh, what kind of prep should we do? What What is the proper? Let's Let's go step by step here. What is What is the the prep that needs to be done in order to make up a, a story on the fly, or is there any prep? I mean, I think we discussed having a, a larger theme in mind. Yep. Is that all you need? Uh, I don't think so. Um, so, first of all, the context matters. I mean, if you're going to show up at a convention and run a game for a bunch of strangers, that's different than 
oh my god, I haven't had any time to prepare for my game session tonight. What are we going to do? Um, let let's let's let I say let's presume uh, for a home game. Okay. Just starting off new or established characters. <laughs> like slicing the pie too thin here. Um, yes, I am. So, <laughs> so we talked about uh, you know my list of backgrounds, but but basically some way to hook the players into story elements. Um, and I guess the step before that is, if you have your theme in mind, what are the kind of um, minds in the field that you want to explode? And a part of that can be, what are the key locations going to be? So, random other story. Mike Merrills was part of our playtesting is running uh, against the Giants. So, uh, we broke into the setting of the Hill Giant Chief by going down one of the chimneys. And he was saying, you know, this is an eight-page adventure. There's no sidebar anywhere in this adventure that says, here are the rules for climbing down a chimney and what happens if there's a fire, the percentage chance that there's a fire going in the fireplace at the time or anything like that. It's an eight-page adventure. All it does is set up the location and, and let you go free. There's nothing in there about, well, if you negotiate with the orc prisoners, hey, you can free them all and you've got a, a hundred orc army to help you take on the hill giants. That's what we did. Um, so there's an element of preparation in having a location or uh, an interesting situation or some NPCs with a motivation that the players can run into and interact with and uh, explore, but not over-preparing, not trying to figure out every possible thing they could do, because they're going to surprise you. Mm-hmm. Um so I think that is probably the the key thing to have ready is either uh, an awesome environment, an interesting situation, or a motivated NPC. Preferably multiple of so all of those. Um, and you know, in my case, those all came from the stacks of pre-published adventures, and there are hundreds of those out there. So there's absolutely no reason not to steal from them. Okay, so a larger theme, player hooks, and and interesting setting with lots of things going on. Yeah, does that pretty well cover the the th- things you need to have prepared in order to uh, make up a story on the fly? And a stack of uh, pre-published adventures that are related to that area. <laughs> <laughs> I see, and make sure they're all vintage first edition stuff, right? That that is no, re- that is a requirement. Tried. Use what? Are you Evil Tide from Second oh, okay. Edition? Okay. <laughs> yeah, actually, so when I was first thinking about the Round Seven Parts campaign, that's what I did. Is I, I kind of went through all my uh, modules and said, which ones do I want to use? Which ones could be interesting hideaways for a piece of the Rod of Seven Parts? Pick um, seven. <laughs> uh, kind of evolved away from that, but I had a long list, including Rana Moore from Dungeon Magazine that Rich Baker wrote. Uh, or Hidden Triumph, Tomoachan, or Ravenloft. Yeah, all sorts of things. Okay. I mean, there's, like I said, there's hundreds of them out there. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'm not typically used to, to such light prep for my story. 
what can I do to prep less? What, how can I go about the, the process of not being um, so prepared for my story? Did I stump you? No. Uh, I was just thinking about... Um, so when I first started working at Wizards, I was really nervous about DMing for my coworkers. Um, because, and I, I think I actually talked about that in the DMG, because, you know, you feel like, am I good enough to <laughs> give these people a good time? Right. Um, so, but I eventually got out of the nerve and I was running uh, an Oriental Adventures playtest for the gaming group that I joined here. Um, and there was one night I just had nothing really prepared. I, I walked in feeling terribly underprepared. Um, I think... I don't remember now exactly what I had, but I think it boiled down to a set of caves, uh, some monster notes, I think. Um, and gosh, let's see what happened. And it was the best session of that, that playtest campaign. Um, so I think sometimes what you need to, to get yourself to prepare less is to be put on the spot, terrified out of your wits, and forced to come up with something. <laughs> So necessity, it's like uh, yeah, kicking a baby bird out of the nest. Look, you can fly. Believe it or not. <laughs> I mean, that might not work for everybody. Uh, well, and sometimes can you can that. sometimes you can create that too. Um, you know, if if you purposely are trying to prepare less, then I think I think you can just stop preparing so much and and see yeah. and see what you can do. And maybe you yeah. maybe you do it and it bombs and you realize, okay, maybe I need a little more than that, you know. Uh, but but <laughs> but maybe it goes okay and you realize, you know what? I don't have to spend three hours before every game session prepare, you know, outlining the the story branches. Uh, I can I I did okay and I can make this up as I go and I'll just get better with time. Yeah. Yeah. Or and or having to know every NPC in the town before they PCs get there. You, you could just get by probably with a list of names if that's something that you're not good at on the fly. Yeah. One of the, one of the great pieces of advice, advice I got out of uh, an old Dragon magazine back in the third edition days, that I take this advice with me all the time, is that everybody has a secret. Yeah. What, whatever it is, however mundane it is, even if it never comes up, whenever, you know, whenever I introduce an NPC, one of the things in my, in my head is I, I try to do is I always try to come up with some sort of secret, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're secretly in love with the the innkeeper. It never comes up, but you know, I might describe some furtive glances here and there, or, or some nervousness about something being discovered that that makes everything yes. you know come alive um, with that NPC. That really had nothing to do with the the larger adventure. Yeah, no, that's really good. But then the players, you know, just like with the feuding brothers, they're going to pick up on that. They're going to say something is going on here. They're going to investigate. And if they uncover what the secret actually is, what, oh, geez, we spent all this energy doing this hidden crush. Or, oh, that was totally awesome. Look, we can get them together and now they're happily married. Yeah. <laughs> we start playing matchmaker. Or, in my experience, even more likely, they won't pick up on it. And that's okay, too. Because, right. Because you didn't spend an hour plotting this together. You know, you just made it up on the phone. Right. Yes. Which actually, yeah. I, I mean, I, oh, go ahead. I, I think that's the biggest thing is just to be able to look at what you've got and say, okay, that's enough. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't possibly anticipate everything that, that they're going to do, so I'm not going to try. Right. 
and and sometimes you know people prepare just enough, but then that also uh, puts people puts your adventurers on the, on some tracks a little bit, at least during that session, you know. Yeah, and, and sometimes it's fun not to get off those tracks and and let the story go goes where it may. Mm-hmm. Now, some of some yeah. of this gets into to the next topic that we were going to talk about, which is the benefits of less prep. You know, other uh-huh. than other than the hours of time saved. Um, why is it good to prepare your story less? Um, I think that it creates a feeling of empowerment for your players. That they they don't wander around saying, what are we supposed to do? Or is this what we're supposed to be doing? They feel like we can do anything we want. Um, and we are shaping the story. Yeah. It's very easy when, when you have something very not necessarily very tightly prepared, but very uh, too scripted to, to just feel like, I mean, I know I've, I've heard my players ask that. Is this what we're supposed to be doing? Because sometimes there's a joke, you know, ha, 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 I bet this isn't what we're supposed to be doing. Hey, awesome. <laughs> do what you want to <laughs> do. This is Dungeons and Dragons, baby. <laughs> yeah, and do you have suggestions? Because I've heard that before at my table with you uh, when I try to let them drive what's going on. Do you have suggestions for how to help them feel okay, or what a DM can do to help the players feel okay with what's going on? Does it does it have to be overt? Do I, when we sit down at the table, do I have to tell them, "Look, I didn't prep story, so we're going to make it up as we go," and 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 so do it? You know, make oh, no. okay, good, because because I've I've had issues with that too, where I've, where I've tipped my head a little too much about how much I was making up on the fly, and I think it took away some of their fun. Yeah, no, I mean, if you can pull it off, the illusion of of being completely prepared uh, is really good. <laughs> um, I mean, having your players, it, it works both ways. If your players think, wow, I can't believe our DM anticipated this, they think you're awesome and a super genius. And if they think, holy cow, I can't believe you came up with such a great story on the fly, they still think you're a super genius. They really, it's a win-win. <laughs> Although I found um, – I did a, a Gamer World game where I tried to do a really low prep game for Halloween. And then, uh-huh. then we took a break for dinner and I kind of talked to one of them about, hey, this is going really well. I, I wasn't sure how it would go because I didn't prepare anything and, and I'm just kind of making up the story as we go. And it's like, oh, so this whole big investigation we're going on doesn't really matter because we're not discovering anything. You're just making it up. <laughs> oh, yeah. I kind of yeah. I kind of ruined your fun there, didn't I? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that is the, the, the flip side and the risk. That mm-hmm. your players feel undervalued or unimportant. So I think I think there's I there's certain things you you can keep close to your chest, um, and there's still yeah. th- you know and if you have this larger theme that we talked about earlier, there are still things to discover. Yes. Yeah, I just I, yeah, I think absolutely. I think one of the problems I I just faced was that a number of my players were used to very scripted mm-hmm. adventures, and they weren't quite sure what to make of this. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, a common issue um, that that I've heard is that people try to do le- low prep and try to do sandbox, and then you, they get into the situation. It's like, okay, well, we don't know what we're supposed to do, so we just won't do anything. Yes, you know, but then that's searching for the fun, right? Or or not searching, <laughs> not finding anything. And I wonder how much uh, of that. Goes, 
I wonder how much of that goes back to your, your original advice on, on having a really interesting setting, environment, problems, NPCs, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Because if you've got enough of those, something will hopefully get their attention enough to have them act. Yeah. Um, and, and the strong hooks. And, and you know, I mm. feel like it's, it's always better for the players to feel like they have too much to do than not enough. And so, you know, if, if five different people at the table have five different hooks and they feel like these are all pulling us in different directions, what are we supposed to do? That's great. As opposed to none of us really know what we're supposed to do. You know, there's, there's two ways you can ask the what are we supposed to do question. <laughs> Which of these several things are we supposed to do? Or I don't know what possibility there is. Right. So having a lot of hooks and having, a, a, you know, patrons or uh, people in trouble or... Um, Villains, obvious villains, or interesting locations, create helps to create that long list of possibilities. Yeah. Well, and so, so as they start looking at their possibilities and starting to make their own choices and finding the fun, uh, how do you incorporate those choices uh, back into the story you're making up as you go along? <laughs> I think the biggest thing is just listening to what they're saying, and that that can be very direct. I'm talking about, um, you know, what they think is happening or just stand back and listen to the conversations that they have among themselves. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example for exactly how to put this or exactly what I'm thinking. My brain is kind of <laughs> going around in, in loops and following. I have too many, uh, too many quests on my list. No, um, so one game that I ran, um, this was another Oriental Adventures campaign I ran. It's a lunchtime game. And I'm talking about 2001 here, which kind of boggles my mind. Um, but so there was this prophecy that unfolded. So, A, I didn't reveal the whole prophecy at the beginning. It came out verse by verse, and each verse reflected what they had done in the previous uh, session. And often that was um, really bastard stuff that I did. Um, and, and largely that was just a matter of players have a great mind for the worst case scenario um, and they will talk about it and that's what you should give them. Usually. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, so, there was one verse of the prophecy that talked about how, well, if you want to unle- unleash this terrible evil on the world, then destroy the one who shall conceive the god who pipes a goat herd song. Um the bad guys are trying to prevent the birth of Krishna into this campaign, basically. My campaign's equivalent of Krishna. Um, and so the characters are off doing something. I don't really remember what. And there's an NPC who's got a, like a shaman who's got a tiger companion. And that NPC gets killed by the bad guys in the course of the, that, that session. Um, oh no, this NPC is dead. Let's cast reincarnate on him. Okay, I roll on the reincarnate table, and he comes back as a human. And somebody at the table says, "Oh, you've got to roll randomly for gender as well." Okay, oh, he comes back as a female. And then somebody at the table says, "Is he pregnant?" Oh, yes, yes, he is. <laughs> so she is now. Right. So what they have done is is turned the words of the prophecy completely upside down. The bad guys killed the one who shall conceive the the God who pipes the goat herd song, right? They didn't um, 
kill the woman who was going to bear him. They killed a guy who, in order, so that he could then be reborn as a woman and and come back pregnant with this god uh, embryo. So all of that is to say, um, your players will sometimes give you the most evil, nasty, and twisted ideas, and by all means, run with those. Well, and, and it also, um, I'm it, not. Sh- I was going to say it also. It also ahead. brings up the point that you also have to be open to these things, right? You have to be looking, act, yes. actively looking for these opportunities uh, because what are the odds that all that was going to come together? But, right. But the, but, the, <laughs> but the opportunity was there and, and you saw it and so it became something really cool. Yeah. Um, so, and that couldn't have happened if I had sat down at the beginning of the campaign and wrote out all the verses of the prophecy. Right. I wrote a verse each week, and each one reflected what the characters had done in the previous session. Um, so I think that touches a little bit more on what your original question was, Tracy, which is you know, when they're making choices, how do you incorporate that into what's going on? And I think um, fundamentally it's just about thinking about consequences, that everything that the characters are going to do is going to have an impact somewhere. There was a question that came up at Gen Con, I think it was Gen Con, last year, um, the kind of the, the perennial question of, oh, what what happens when the player characters get so powerful they think they can just come into the village and, and uh, take it over? And and this, this historically been this escalation of power and well, every NPC in the village got to, has got to be higher level than they are, so that can't happen. And somebody said, no, let it happen. Let them deal with the consequences of that. Um, hey. hey, now we rule this village. We're the, the big shots. And Gosh, we are taking all of the income, and the farmers are starting to starve. Do we care? Hmm, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> gosh, there's a rebel movement starting up uh, against our rule. How do we feel about that, and what are we going to do about it? Gosh, they've enlisted the aid of the neighboring kingdom. <laughs> or you know, so rather than use a hammer to to smash behavior that you don't want, um, or or to steer the players onto the course that you expect them to go on, let them do what they want to do and, and come up with logical consequences to that. Mm-hmm. I guess an example from my uh, game at the Escapist Expo was, was just the session to session, how do I incorporate what the last group did? Um, so there was a case where in, uh, in Keep on the Borderlands, there's a, a priest who is a, a secret member of the cult of chaos, and he's masquerading as a, a good cleric. Um, so in one session, the characters unmasked him and revealed uh, somebody snuck up into his room in the inn while they were talking to him and his silent acolytes downstairs and found, you know, I don't know what's in his chest. Let's see. Oh, yeah, you dig around in the bottom and you find a stole that's got the symbol of the cult of chaos on it. So, yes, clearly he's a secret evil bad guy, and they kill him. And so then... I've got that hook in the next session of you're a member of this cult that he was posing as a member of this uh, sect of mendicant priests. How are you going to react to that? Um, that was a case of, of letting the players explore the consequences of that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, set, setting that up to say people are kind of looking at you funny now because you belong to the same religion and they're, they're not sure the rest of you are clean. How far did that corruption spread? So that gave the player a great motivation to get further into the root of this and to make sure that and that's another great role-playing thing, right? 
hey, look, I'm a, a cleric of the Raven, and I'm doing good here. See me strike down the Sahulian on the dock? Yeah, right on. So, and, and I think this may tie in as well. Um, where do we get our ideas? I mean, if you're you're making stuff up as you go, you still have to draw inspiration from something. So they go to this place. All right, what does that look like? How do I figure that out? Um, where do I get my inspiration from? Other than a giant stack of uh, a giant stack of first edition modules. So the example that just popped into my head when you said they go to this place and what does it look like is, uh, well, they did. One group eventually went to the the Temple of Chaos, uh, which instead of I, I put the Caves of Chaos on this little cluster of rocky islands called the Teeth. So they steered their way around to the center island of the Teeth where the Temple of Chaos was and made their way. And you're totally, okay, I'll draw you a map of the Teeth and show you where, <laughs> where the islands are off the top of my head. Um, they get up to the doorway of the temple and I describe the pillars that flank the side of the, uh, the entrance. And, and so where did I get the ideas for that? From campaigns that I ran years ago, uh, from imagery like the, all the stuff that I was talking about, what the Queen of Chaos might look like. Um, I think I ended up with an inscription about the Lich Queen, the, who was the major villain of my campaign in this world, 20 years ago um, and iconography of the, the different forms of the um, queen of chaos. So my, my flip answer to where you get ideas is everywhere. Read books, watch TV, watch movies, um, listen to your players, uh, dream <laughs> the <laughs> monster in the, the third edition theme folio called the soul tick that I wrote based on a nightmare that my wife had. She was not pleased. <laughs> uh, but I still think about this old tick inspired by my wife's name. Um, so hopefully that's a scary monster, right? Uh, and digging through old adventures. Again, you, there are hundreds of them out there, so there's no reason not to use them for inspiration. The other thing is you know, sometimes inspiration takes a minute uh, or it takes longer than a minute. So it's okay in the middle of a session if the players have done something completely unexpected to say, okay, why don't you go to the kitchen and, and uh, restock your plates and let me think for a minute. And yeah. step away from the table, uh, go browse yourselves. I'm sitting right now in the R&D library surrounded by 30 years of D&D history, which is kind of awesome. So obviously I have access to resources that not everybody does, but there's, there's countless sources of ideas out there available and an internet that has most of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find a lot. I find a lot of my inspiration actually comes from previous games I was in, either games I used to run or games that I've played in. And it sounds like you you discussed doing the same thing. You know, there yeah. there was this NPC I had in a game when I was twelve, and I liked that NPC. And you know what? This guy is that NPC, or at least there's elements yep. of him there. You know, or stuff like that yep. all, all the time. So yep. play, so play more uh, games, and you'll be better at playing games. No, exactly. It's certainly <laughs> the case that that other NPCs or other players' characters have shown up in my games. Like, um, there was a game at Gen Con where Jesse Decker played this totally gloomy, pessimistic cleric who was quite sure that everything was going to turn out horribly. And I'm pretty sure I've played that NPC several times since then. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I have played the flip side of that, 
in response, I think at the celebrity game at Gen Con last year, I played the hopelessly optimistic guy who was just, everything's awesome. It's going to turn out great. Sometimes, you know, inspiration can be as easy as just a, a word that you hang an NPC's personality on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I there are random tables for that. Random tables are a great source of ideas. Um, what is it? What are the features in this room? Hey, there's a table in the first edition DMG for that. Yeah. Uh, and Goodman Games, Goodman Games put out a couple of books just full of random tables that are good for that kind of stuff too. Mm-hmm. I think there's what GM, mm-hmm. GM gems and PC pearls. Okay. That's that's old school. That was one of our, our I think one of the first bunch of products we reviewed on the show. Yeah. It's a long time I've, ago. I've heard of people using tarot cards for inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, the deck of many things. <laughs> um, I'm actually, I'm, is a, is a fine thing. I'm uh, interested in using the Dixit game. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, it's like Apple's Apple's, but it's all picture games, all picture cards that you have to uh, bet on which one is, is the one the storyteller had uh, picked. But some uh, of the cards are just surreal or fantastical, and things like that, and you can always pull an item out of the card to uh, add to your story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Mike Merles ran a lunchtime game here a while ago uh, where he used the cards from Everway to help us develop our character backgrounds. It was the same mm-hmm. sort of thing, just, you know, what does is, what is this card symbolize or inspire, or, uh, you know, is, is there a visual element here to incorporate into the character? Mm-hmm. Right on. Now, sometimes... I find that and you gave the advice of if you're having a hard time, you know, send everybody off to go reload their plates or, or take a bathroom break or whatever you need to do to, to sort of figure out what's going on. Um, but sometimes mm-hmm. I find that when I'm in, when I'm making things up on the fly and, and story stuff, especially there's little things that shouldn't, you know, hang me up, you know, uh, th- this NPC who's not really very consequential, but for some reason I can't figure out a name and a personality for him, you know, <laughs> I shouldn't have a take a break so I can figure out that this guy's name is Antonio right. or whatever, right? Uh, right. So, so, so what do, what do we do in those situations? That's a case where preparing to improvise can be very, very helpful. Uh, Chris Perkins, I know, DMs with a, a page or two clipped to the inside of his DM screen of, of names. So you don't try to think of one in the middle of a game because you'll come up with something stupid. <laughs> Um, but pick one from the list in front of you. Then if you want to, you can make a note uh, next to his name on the list saying, oh, I use this name for this guy. And so next time the players encounter him, they're going to be really impressed that you remember his name. Um, similarly, the, having a random table of personality quirks, um, if you've got to take a minute to open up the Dungeon Master's Guide, you'll find one, but uh, that's another thing you could tape to the inside of your DM screen. We should put these things on the inside of DM screens. If only um, we knew somebody who worked at the Wizards of the Coast office that could put these things on the, on a DM screen. Seriously. Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, that's a case where a tiny bit of preparation can save you those awkward moments. Mm-hmm. I also have found that just asking my players to shut up for a minute and let me think. You know, you don't have to get up from the table. We don't need to turn this into a five-minute break. Just give me a second. Mm-hmm. I'll figure this out. And often that's the case where actually I've got too much inspiration. I need to figure out 
uh, again, the example that pops into my head is the campaign that I ran uh, a couple of years ago uh, with the, the gods and the primordials. Oh, how do I want to take this? Is Imix, uh it aligned with the gods or rebelling against the gods, or is he one of the ones who never joined with the gods? Um, let me think about that for a second before I give you the answer. In response to a, a knowledge check, right? Hmm. Somebody made a religion check and I needed to give them an answer. Oh, I need to figure out this, this bit about my world that I haven't thought of before. Give me a second to think through the consequences of my answer and how I want the campaign to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find sometimes the, the trick that I'll use that, that's worked okay for me on these little things, um, because there, you come back to that issue of you don't necessarily want to tip your hand that you're making everything up as you go. Now, some things, uh-huh. some things. It's, I mean, it's a role playing game, right? So, uh, some some inconsequential or minor of minor consequence NPCs. They, I, I think, people expect you to be making up, right? Um, yeah. But sometimes, if it's if it's a little bit more important than that, I don't want to tip my hand that I'm making this up as I go or whatever. Um, that's when I'll pull out a book and pretend that I'm looking something up. You know? <laughs> yeah. And and maybe maybe I'll I'll be inspired by a picture I see or maybe I'll just be killing time until I can come up with something, you know? I'm reading this very yeah. carefully. Leave me alone. I'll be right to you in a second. I'll I will totally answer that question. Um Yeah, this is this is uh Fred and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So that's really good advice. I like that. Sweet. I did something good. <laughs> Tracy, any last uh, topics to discuss on, on preparing uh, or not preparing our stories? Um, I think we've covered just about everything. James, James, any other bits of advice you have for people who want to prepare less? I'm looking over my page of notes. I think we've covered just about everything that I thought of in advance. Awesome. Then I think it's time to wrap things up. Great. Thanks, uh, thanks James, for coming on. Um, I thought of one more thing. Oh. oh. <laughs> um, I ran into a situation uh, in a game that I was running with my old friends from back home on the D&D virtual table for a while, where I, I didn't want to prepare very much, so what I ended up doing was just stringing together combat encounters. That is not a good way to <laughs> do a game with very little preparation. And I, I have fallen into that habit. I kind of, I, I feel like all through the Dungeon Master Guide in my Dungeon Craft column, I became the champion for the uh, DM who didn't have enough time uh, to, to really prepare. And I took that too far to where I wasn't really putting any thought into the story of the adventure mm-hmm. and just focusing on, okay, you've got this encounter, this encounter, this encounter. Um, so the everything else that we've talked about, I think, is is the, the positive side. And that is just a negative side to, to watch out for. Mm-hmm. And it took my players saying, you know what? This doesn't feel like the D&D that we used to play for me to realize, oh, wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm not giving this my all, right. my full right. imagination and effort. We're, and we're discussing low prep. We're not nece- not necessarily discussing no no prep stories. And, and it is and it yeah. is key that, that we wanted to talk to you specifically in this episode about – not prepping your stories. There might be other prep you're doing, um, but yeah. in terms of story, to keeping things fluid and open and making it up as you go, which is a is very specific skill, um, but it, it should still, as, as as you're pointing out, be focused on story. Yeah, I mean, the Eberron campaign I ran years ago. I remember third edition. I remember spending 
hours and hours before the game just making up stat blocks. That is not a good use of time. <laughs> use pre-generated ones, pull out the monster manual. But there's whatever. not but there's not enough monsters already made out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean NPCs are always the trouble. Mm. But there are ways around that. Yeah. Okay, right. I'm done. Very good. Well, why don't you tell people where they can find you on the internet? I don't even know anymore. I don't really maintain my blog. Uh, so you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Aquella James. Aquella being the name of my campaign world that I created when I was in ninth grade. That's A-Q-U-E-L-A. James. All one word. Um, yeah, you can find me on Facebook too, but you won't see very much. <laughs> cool. Well, we'll head. We'll aim people at your uh, at your Twitter account. And if, if pe- otherwise, if people want to know uh, what you're up to, they should buy everything that Wizards puts out because you put your finger in just about all of it, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and we should let people know that they can get a hold of us. They can email us at thetomeshow at gmail They can uh, swing by the website and, and see the show notes at thetomeshow uh, you can call the Tomes Bizline at 919 B I Z T O M E. That's 919 Biz Tome. Uh, does that cover it all, Tracy? Yeah, it covers everything. Awesome. And that is episode 209, where we figured out how to make it up all, as we go along. And in particular, to the world pauses as the DM thinks in this episode of. The Tome, the Tome, the Tome, the Tome, the Tome, the Tome. I'm on the wall.